It's time for Talking Pictures Trivia. A quick friendly reminder, marshmallows are an acceptable dinner item when combined with certain starches. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom and KJ. Great to have you back as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Ragnar. Thanks for joining us again, Ragnar. Ragnar and KJ were teachers together in Japan. You may remember Ragnar from our Rules of the Game, M, and Phantom Carriage episodes. Ragnar owns and runs the Trolley Stop Cafe in New Orleans. Last week, the top-selling plate was the chicken and waffle. Ragnar conveniently continues to like movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with the movie quiz, as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant, Where Anything Goes. KJ, tell us about today's movie. Today, we are continuing our journey through movies we have not seen, but have been on our list for a while. And this week, we're going back to 1977, when Tolkien publishes The Silmarillion, Dancing Queen by ABBA is all the rage, and actually, it doesn't seem like too much was going on in 1977. But David Lynch did release his first feature-length film, Eraserhead. Eraserhead would have been in theaters with Arnold Schwarzenegger's Bumping Iron, Freaky Friday starring Jodie Foster, King Kong starring Jeff Bridges, and A Star is Born starring Barbara Streisand. Tom will be quizzing us this week. Tom, tell us about Eraserhead. Okay, so Eraserhead is a film where we meet a young printer named Henry living in this nightmare of a city. And he has accidentally impregnated his girlfriend, Mary X, and is forced by her mother to marry her. They bring home a baby. The baby is maybe technically a baby. It looks more like a, a screaming monster or spermazoa. Um, and this nightmare deepens as Henry finds himself seduced by this mysterious neighbor, um, entranced by a woman living in his radiator, and later decapitated, um, seemingly by the unending howl of his monster child. Uh, so my main way of entering this movie and thinking about this movie is through style. And I think that's the way you know, many people think of David Lynch's films. They're most they're, they're more distinct in terms of their style than anything else. Therefore, my guiding question in this episode, the thing I kind of want to to try and answer through these questions is, what does the style of Eraserhead communicate? KJ, if you had one word to describe Eraserhead, what would it be? Distracting. Nick? Wah. Ragnar? Lynchian. And I would say dreamy. It's time for Movie Quiz. Okay, and so each question is going to be worth one point. We'll have two rounds of two questions each, um, and hopefully that will help us discuss this movie and unpack it. It's time for question one. Who can be seen first nursing his or her offspring in this film? Locked in. Locked in, too. I'm locked in. All right, Nick, what do you have? The answer is none other than Henry Spencer. 
Ragnar, what do you have? I have a different answer. Oh. I had Mary X. KJ, what do you have? In the beginning of the movie, there was that creepy guy that kind of looked like Christian Bale with maybe the tattoos that was looking out the window. Was he nursing somebody? You know what I'm talking about? The, the tattoo guy. I'm going with him. Okay, so no, nobody gets any points. Oh. <laughs> the, fir- <laughs> the first thing we see nursing offspring is the dog. The dog in that house. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With yeah, there was like, what, 20 puppies attached? Yep, exactly. So the the first time we get a signal of motherhood is that dog. And throughout the living room scene, all you hear is the sucking sound. Yeah. It becomes just part of the soundtrack. Um, and so one, what's interesting to me about, uh, especially about that scene, because I think the more than anything, that household scene kind of sets the moment, um, is, is the way kind of irony is used in this movie. And in, in this sense, what I mean by irony is the gap between a appearance and reality. And so I'm interested in how Lynch establishes that gap or what you think is kind of like the most ironic aspect to this film. This isn't the greatest example, but it was the first thing that came to my head. In the very beginning of the film, we see Henry walking, um, I think back to his apartment. And he he's not walking down streets and stuff. He's kind of walking over gravel sometimes, like mounds of gravel, right? It he's not walking anywhere particularly difficult, but if I had a dream and that's where I was walking, it would get continuously more difficult. It, 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 where he was walking to me felt like a place we don't normally walk unless we've made a mistake and we regret it as soon as we're walking there. And I thought that was a, and it that seemed like his daily routine was to have to walk this, this path. But I, I think that's a good example of it, right? Like the kind of the everyday, I mean, it's a movie about everyday activity, right? But it's, it's so very different. So even him walking home with, I guess, something from the store, right? He's got something, from, you know, it's like he has to walk up and down mountains. Um, he's got to wait an interminable amount of time for that elevator door to close. Uh, and, you know, there doesn't seem to be, he seems to live in a, an abandoned factory that also has an art deco lobby, I, you know? So there seems to be like the, the what seems to happen here is, we're not looking at um, a particularly dramatic story necessarily. It's just the everyday story of people's lives is distorted in, in this bizarro way. So I'd like to defend my answer or at least explain where my answer came from. In the early part of the movie, you see him almost like vomiting this type of creature. And it made me think of how a bird regurgitates sustenance for it for its young and that's why i chose and we are dealing with a uh, david lynch movie here so that's why i chose that as the first offspring being nurtured by uh something Ooh, i really like that i'm gonna give nick a point <laughs> i'm gonna give nick one point <laughs> that's a really good answer actually yeah that, that's what i was thinking <laughs> yeah and uh, i like that answer a lot um and it yeah the, and that that thing too that kind of like that it that looks like a baby and also kind of looks like a looks like a little bit like a sperm yeah um, yeah that's god that's everywhere uh that's an interesting point because he's like the nursing of the baby is also painful 
right? Like the regurgitating is painful. Him like having to vomit up the baby is painful. Uh, and yeah, that seems to be like everything around that baby just kind of sucks and drains you of life. You um, learn a lot of what you're about to get into from that sequence. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, you do. And you also get the um, whatever it is, that kind of planetoid thing that his head goes is superimposed over. Um, that's an interesting thing. I can't quite figure out what that is, but yeah. I thought and, it was maybe like the egg. I don't know. Yeah, it, it looks like an egg. Yeah. It breaks I, open. I think Lynch himself calls it the black a black planet in mm -hmm. his like uh, notes. But oh, okay. I have no idea what, what he's going for. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah, kind of the black planet makes sense. Maybe that's where Henry lives. It's where Henry lives, but it's also when we first see it, it's superimposed or he's superimposed in such a way that it's he's his head is over it. So it's like his brain space is over the, the black planet. Um so it's both a location and a state of mind. It's time for question two. What are all the lyrics to the song The Lady in the Radiator sings? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right, Nick, you're going first. I really couldn't pay attention to what she was saying because she had this really bad like paper mache face thing going on with the cheeks. It's so radiation. Yeah. yeah, so uh, I really, I, I have no idea what she was saying. So uh, I'm going to just say, uh, look at my paper mache cheeks. <laughs> okay, very good. KJ, I think you locked in second. I did. I also have no idea. Um, one, two, squish. One, two. <laughs> <laughs> and Ragnar, what do you have? In heaven, everything is fine. Okay. So I'm going to give it to Ragnar. You did miss. You've got your good things and I've got mine, but you were the closest. So one point to Ragnar. I'll take okay. it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. One thing that's incredibly compelling about this movie is how characters are used. Um, I, I think we have characters who we can identify, right? Mary, Mary's mother, Henry, obviously. And then there's these other characters in the periphery who are, I can't tell if they're more kind of symbolic that is representative of some kind of, um, I don't know what you would call it, uh, some kind of id or, or what have you, or if they're, um, you know, kind of functionaries in, in a narrative sense or both. So looking at the lady in the radiator, what do you think her job was in this movie? Why do you think she's in this movie? I was going to ask you the same question. I I think it's to give you a break while you're watching, right? It's a pretty intense movie the whole time. Um, unfortunately, it'd be like if you were running and you took a break by doing push-ups or something. Like, it's not a break, it, it, but at least it's a little change of pace. Um, so for the movie, I think it's to to add to the to the dreamlike, but give you a break from the current dream you're in. I would almost apply that to Henry. That's where I would think it too. Yeah. I think it's, you know, he is not doing too well. And, uh, you know, he just gave, he just fathered this monster child and everything is going wrong. And he's fantasizing about, you know, the girl next door. And so everything's just crushing him. And he just stares at the radiator and just zones out. 
you know, and wishful thinking, you know, in heaven, everything is fine, hoping for another life, another chance to start over. And so I think that's what she represents, maybe a break for him, a mental break. Yeah, and she's also the last thing he sees, or the last thing we see him see anyway, which is when, you know, when he slays the monster, quote unquote, also his baby, uh, you know, that that's the person who embraces him in this kind of this aura of white light. And she kind of takes on the the, the role of comforter. Um, I don't think there's anybody else who really offers him comfort. Right. I mean, the lady across the hallway offers him sex, you know, um, but that seems to be, I don't know, like a, a, a false comfort or something like that. Uh, it seems like he needs comfort that is sex free, so to speak. Right. He needs more of the, 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 the mother figure than the kind of the sexual figure. I think the kind of the, the fascination or the, um, the, the fascination and simultaneous disgust when it comes to issues of sex seems to drive a lot of, of what Henry is doing and who Henry is. And he was hoping for that comfort from the, the neighbor, you know, because at first, yeah, he was having a great time, obviously. But then she's with someone else next time he sees her. So it was, he thought he was going to have some comfort with her, uh, they, that, that they had some kind of connection, but in fact, they didn't. And that's why he was so shocked when he saw her with someone else. Mm -hmm. I, I have a question about her. Did you guys get the sense that she may actually be a prostitute? Not for him, with him, but I got that kind of vibe. I see what you're saying, because she did have kind of like this worn out stripper look kind of thing, you know, kind of like, I mean, not, not to be vulgar, she's been heavily used because she looked really been, a, been around she's, she's had been a rough around. life yeah. <laughs> but i think everybody in that movie has been around and has had a rough life it seems like a horrible place to live where pipes are running through your house and it's just wild yeah i i, I mean i think she is sexual in every way that's obviously sexual Right, and so like signaling prostitute makes a lot of sense. I don't know if she's literally a prostitute, um, but the fact that we see her through Henry's eyes as somebody who is, who could potentially be a prostitute, right, makes a lot of sense. Because, you know, this is this, and this is what gets him in the trap too, right? This is what gets him married to Mary and with, with Monster Baby is, you know, a, a sexual encounter, which kind of destroys everything. Um, and it seems to be, yeah. And he is fascinated with the woman in the hallway because of, I think, because she signals sex so hard. She could be a prostitute. She's clearly experienced, right? Regardless of whether people are paying for it. And that's fascinating for him. But he can't do anything with that. He's not the one who engages her. She engages him. He's kind of paralyzed by, by her, her sexuality. Well, he's not a confident person in general mm -hmm. from what we've seen even when he's uh mary's mother kind of point blank wants to know the status of their relationship and what went down he is very bashful almost like a boyish yeah yeah and even in that scene there's a sexual thing between mary's mother and him exactly she just starts kissing his neck and he's weird <laughs> yeah. yeah but it, it kind of falls into the same like there's this thing called sex 
and it is attacking me. <laughs> you know, it, it seems like second, and this I could be totally off on this. Probably am with any Lynch film. You know, you can never know. But when he has sex with the next door neighbor, they're in this pool on the bed, right? And the only other time I see a pool like that is in the beginning of the movie, when the child is thrown into it, um, and we also never get to see the the love making that led to the child it's before the movie comes in so maybe it is uh, that pool seems to be something related to sex the baby's in there the the intercourse is in there and they get swallowed by it what does it all mean i have no clue but i just figured some probable connection there i have an angle on that and again it's up for interpretation but when i saw that and I don't know if this goes into anything that Tom had on the agenda, but it gave me a very primal or primordial ooze type feeling with creation. So that's that's really like that that fact of of the primordial ooze and a creature or some kind of being crawling out of it. That's the vibe I got, and I'm sure that's exactly what David Lynch was thinking. Because I actually think you're right on because <laughs> he he goes Lynch uses primordial like ooze like oil yeah. and weird things in other works mm. for the spawning of creatures or entering into another dimension so he uses that imagery quite a lot yeah and it connects us i think it's yeah i agree with with you nick i think that's a good it's a good reading because um the thing with the primordial is that the social covers that up right so this kind of primordial urges that that we have as biological things right things that want to have sex and and create and that kind of links us to our genetic ancestors and and you know the kind of the creation of life etc it's like the, the the social stuff the the you know the suit and the job and all that that sort of covers it up and you know a, a lot of um I, I think a lot of this movie too is um you know, about these kind of social conventions be they marriage or sitting down to dinner with the family in the worst possible meet the parents dinner that has ever <laughs> happened in the history of the world yeah, I, I think medieval kings who have been killed doing that type of thing have had a better time than henry at that dinner um but yeah so the, it, it kind of covers up the the primal and then you know like freud says about the return of the repressed that stuff just doesn't go away that is in us deeply and it's going to kind of return regardless it's going to boil back up you know and the more you press it down the weirder it's going to manifest well tom these were some interesting questions to start off the episode we just have to take a quick commercial break for a new sponsor so be right back I love putting on my deodorant while riding the N train from Brooklyn to Midtown, ripping off my shirt and sliding that stick up and down my armpits while well-dressed people attempt to look away is always the highlight of my morning. I would pick someone and just stare as I applied mountain breeze or rainforest fresh to my stinking pits. I never made friends this way, but boy, I sure am hopeful I will. The only problem with this wonderful communal routine is the sound. Rush hour on a New York subway? Gee willikers, that is loud. 
The mashing of gears, the scream of the rusty track, the piping loud voice of the subway announcer. Who needs it? I tell you, friend, I was going plumb deaf. That's why, when Earborn Cosmetics came out with noise-dampening deodorant, I was thrilled. After years of ear-damaging subway hygienic routines, I now guard against unwanted sound abuse. Just smash some soothing, hollowing, wolf-scented deodorant onto your armpits, and in no time your creep show morning routine will be as quiet as a soundproof room on the ice moon of Europa. Finally, a deodorant that allows you to inappropriately change in public without the howl of disgusted citizens. That's noise-dampening deodorant from Earburn Cosmetics. Smell quietly. And we're back. Before we continue with Tom's questions, we have to ask our guest a critical question. If you could watch this movie with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be, Ragnar? Well, I think the obvious answer at first is David Lynch himself. Because as, I'm watch- as, we-, as we would be watching this film, I would turn to him every moment I can and be like, what the heck is this? But I know that all he would do is just smile and shake his head and refuse to answer any of his questions, any of my questions. That's what he's known for, and that's why we love him, because he doesn't explain anything. So the, the correct answer, I think, for me is uh, Jack Nance, uh, who is the star of not only this movie, but he has been with David Lynch in, in several other projects, uh, Twin Peaks in particular. And I'm sure he has tons of stories uh, regarding not just Eraserhead, but all of his works with Lynch, and I would love to hear them all. So absolutely, Jack Nance. So talking about Jack Nance, there was an interview that he was in regarding Twin Peaks. Uh, it was like a fanzine. And somebody asked him you know, detailed questions about the eraser head, what it meant. And he pretty much said, you guys get way too deep over this business. I don't take it all that seriously. It's only a movie. <laughs> so he might not tell you much either. <laughs> looks, like, looks like we're out of luck finding answers for this movie. Yeah, it's amazing because they spent so Lynch came to American Film Institute in Los Angeles in I think 71 with the with a 21 page treatment of of this movie. And they didn't finish it until 76 and it wasn't released till 77. Five years. You're right. I read it five yeah. years, 21, 22 page script, whatever. it is. Yeah. And Jack Nance kept that hair the whole time. <laughs> Commitment right there. Yeah. Yeah, his his wife at the time, apparently the marriage didn't last through the whole movie, was responsible for like combing it up and whatnot. Um, but yeah, so I, I, you know, like it's just a movie. Why do you take it so seriously? He seems to have himself taken it pretty, <laughs> pretty seriously. Uh, I think yeah. that hair is a pivotal part of this movie, too. I mean, that really does jump out at you. Yeah, I, I originally because I. Part of the the theme for these three movies is, uh, is movies we haven't seen that we've been meaning to see, and I've always I've seen the poster for Eraserhead, um, and I just assumed it was called that because of his hair. It just looked like a big pencil eraser. Yeah, same yeah. here, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> so then it was David Lynch. I was terrified we were going to watch this guy go around erasing things that shouldn't be erased with his hair. That's what. 
you know, if this was title judge, that's what I thought it would have been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I'm I'm glad that or wasn't a picture. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it is, I you know, another thing about this too, before we jump back into the questions is this is an amazingly kind of beautiful movie, especially for a first film that um, that was made on almost no money. It's like aesthetically gorgeous, regardless of the, the weirdnesses of it. The lighting and the shadows are incredible. I mean, we talked about his hair. The guy holding the light bulb behind his hair should get just as much credit as everybody else in this in this movie. And then there are even times where you could see like the sheets on the bed. And if you looked, the shadows of where the folds were on the sheet were just, they were gorgeous. It was amazing. Yeah, he's a, he's a painter initially by trade Lynch's. Um, I think he trained at the Philadelphia Academy of Arts, which is also where he, he thought up this movie. He, he, he imagined this nightmare city as Philadelphia because he thought Philadelphia was such a awful city, um, you know, which, which it is. Let's get real. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we lost Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> our, our guest last week was from Philly, so we're allowed to tease him a little bit. <laughs> Most of our listeners as well <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, that was singular <laughs> most of our listener as well <laughs> all right well before i destroy our entire audience <laughs> shall we get into the next round let's do it let's do it all right we are tied one one ragnar and nick for what about max. kj oh and kj is zero <laughs> <laughs> something new <laughs> something. it's time for Question three. After having sex, Henry and the woman next door run into each other as she comes home with a new lover. She appears to be disgusted by him. Why? Locked in. Locked in? Locked in. All right, Ragnar, you're the last to lock in, so you're the first to go. What do you have? She is disturbed and disgusted by Henry because when she looks at him, his head is replaced by that of his monster child baby thing. All right, KJ. Um, I, I couldn't remember the scene, so I, I thought it might have been because his baby was so loud all the time and it was keeping her up, so she was disgusted that he couldn't uh, keep his kid quiet. All right, and Nick? My answer was just going to be baby creature. They both got a little bit more specific, but that was the thing that she was envisioning. But my actual locked-in answer was baby creature. In in so she's just disgusted by a baby creature. No, by the baby creature, which is again, Ragnar went a little deeper into the actual imagery, but I was just saying in general. Okay, very good. So I'm going to say the points go to Ragnar and Nick. I'm going to go assume that Nick, what you meant was kind of what Ragnar meant. Um, it was so very it was. good. Yeah. So in that scene. <laughs> in that scene i wrote it down no, <laughs> <laughs> right yep so in that scene uh she comes home with a new lover she looks at henry and we i think in one of the only scenes that takes place in the city in which we get a perspective that is different from henry's we see through her eyes that he looks like uh, his suit with the baby's head taken has taken place, which is interesting um, in part for that reason that within the city limits, 
This is the only time I think we get a perspective that isn't Henry's. When he's on that stage thingy and his head bl- blows off. Yeah, but I, yeah, maybe. I, I'm thinking kind of that there's the city and then there's these other planes you kind of go to. Okay. That might be a bad way to look at it. I, I'm sort of imposing that reading on the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm kind of interested because I my personal reading of the movie is that scene is incredibly important. And I was wondering what people, how people read that and how they read it in context to, in context with rather, the scene that came before. The, um, the scene in which Henry is decapitated. I'm not sure about the importance of that scene, but there's an element that scene I really enjoyed when he was looking through the peephole. I don't know why that shot was really cool because we know the door is going to slam anyway, but just the fact that he's looking through an old fashioned peephole and sees her door close. I, I just thought that was a pretty cool uh, shot. <laughs> yeah. So I was trying to figure out why the movie was called the Razorhead when we were talking about his hair before and we were wrong. Um, and at the scene where his head came off, I was like, oh. And then I thought maybe he's an alien. That's why his kid was an alien. He just had that head on there. And then once they erased it, he could show his true form. Um, so that's kind of how I took those scenes. That That's what he looked like. But if this was a dream, it would it would feel like when you have a dream and all of a sudden you realize your head is a little alien head and everybody's looking at you. So it also kind of had that kind of a vibe going not that i don't think this scene was a dream but i'm saying if this is if the whole movie was felt like a dream this felt like those nightmares where you realize you're at school and you know you're you have no clothes on or something and it felt like oh no my head's the wrong head and everybody's looking at me that kind of a thing what Mm -hmm. scene are you referring to as the pivotal scene i thought he was talking about when the lady went in her room with the other guy are we talking about that or the i i was talking about both i think okay I think they work together. I, okay. I, when I first said it, I meant like the the scene where the lady is with the new lover and sees the baby head, just because the, the change in perspective is so stark um, and so different. Um, but I think that that obviously connects to the other time when we see mm-hmm. him with a baby head, which is in that extended dream sequence where he's decapitated and um, turned into eraser fuel. Is that rubber? Well, erasers, like his head is rubber. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. Um, I like how KJ's crazy interpretation is not crazy enough for David Lynch. The fact (laughs) that he was, oh, he's an alien and he had an alien baby. Yeah, right. Come on. We got to get deeper than that. (laughs) Isn't it crazy? The whole time I kept thinking, is is this what fatherhood's like? Is this what it's being a father? Well, that incessant crying is, again, Tom chose this movie just to torture me uh, i have a nine month uh, nine month uh, old in the house and the first few months were kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, going to like what kj said about this movie being a dream i felt a similar thing when i was watching it because when you think back on a memory there's usually one or two aspects of that memory that really stand out strong to you, a scent, one thing that happened, and then it exaggerates it and your, your memory of it becomes based off of that. That's how I feel when I'm watching Eraserhead. For example, when he's cutting the chicken thing and we really, there's goo coming out of it. It seems like something you remember, like you're telling your friends, oh man, and I was there and I put my fork into the chicken and it squirted goo everywhere. So it's just like, 
he gets one aspect and blows it up to an uncomfortable level and almost feels like that's why these movies, his movies, but Eraserhead feels almost like disproportionate and weird and uncomfortable, kind of like a nightmare memory. Would it perhaps be surreal? Maybe we're getting to the heart of what surreal means instead <laughs> of just saying that word. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that's an interesting, that's an interesting reading because there's like, and I put this in my notes too, kind of a distinction between what's surreal and what's kind of expressionistic. So that like expressionism kind of acts as uh, as this kind of artistic display in which the subject experience, subjective experience of a character um, is depicted. And then surrealism looks more at the subconscious, uh, you know, which would have kind of um, undercurrents of the individual that the individual doesn't necessarily have control over. So it seems like what, with what you're saying there with like the, the chickens and whatnot, it's like a really expressionistic definition of that scene, uh, you know, which, which is a really interesting read, right? Because it's like this thing that happened, right? Maybe he tried to whatever, stab the, the chicken and like, juice came out of it and it was embarrassing. But in this kind of, um, you know, expressionistic format, it would be like what you see on screen, which is the chicken starts dancing kind of and blood comes out of it. And it's disgusting beyond words. And we get a close up of like the blood shooting out of the, like the butt end of it, um, you know? And, and so it has both kind of the quality of a dream in the movie, but there's these moments like you're saying Ragnar, where it's the experience of this individual experience we recognize as exploded, as, as blown up on screen. And I think that's a really, really cool reading that you, that you're giving to it there. Cause you know, when we talk about like the dream world, um, that's not exactly it, but it seems true of this movie. So I wonder if this movie is kind of more than surreal or, or surreal isn't quite right. Yeah, I feel like this whole thing is a dream world of David Lynch. We're just in his mind and he's allowing us in. In interviews, he had said that this is the, in this movie, he did not think of the audience at all. He was just making it, what was in his mind. And so, yeah, you know, it's a scary place to be. KJ's impression uh, shows utter shock of that he was not thinking of the audience. I just want to share that. <laughs> this blockbuster? What? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, are you sure? You guys want to say? <laughs> he just kept explaining everything over and over. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I, I do want to just quickly circle back and, and address your question directly, Tom. Um, you asked, what, what, what is our take on that scene when she turns to him and sees his face be replaced by the baby. Um, I think, I, I, I read David Lynch pretty straightforwardly. I think he's a very honest filmmaker and a very blunt filmmaker. And to me, it was just that he has become that child, that the, him having a child has, and in, in, in a sense, you know, maybe like, like, like Nick's, you know, life with a nine month old where it, I imagine consumes your entire life and think that's what you think about all the time. So when we look at him now, we look at a nine month old baby because that's what, who he is now. That's kind of how I read it. That she's like, Ooh, I, I want my freedom. I want to be able to sleep with guys and, and have a great time. Not be, a, not be with a baby. Yeah. Like being a dad is not sexy, right? exactly. <laughs> you know, it's sort of, and it becomes your identity. It becomes your identity exactly. in this. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree. I think that's that's pretty good. It's time for question four. This movie starts where we see Henry floating in what appears to be outer space. Who is the first person we see after Henry? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right, Ragnar, you're locked in last, so it's it's on you. First person we see is the man on the planet in the house with the levers. KJ, I think you locked in second. What do you have? I thought it was the, the tattoo guy I was talking about earlier. He's like looking out the window. Are those, is that the, were there levers there? Is that the same guy? Okay, yeah, the, uh, yeah, that guy, uh, again, I thought he looked like Christian Bale. The Christian Bale okay. guy. Okay. I think he looked more like Crispin Glover, but I'll give it to uh, And Nick, what do you have? Well, I'm questioning my locked-in answer, but I was going to say bad paper mache cheeks lady. All right. And KJ and Ragnar both get the point. It was the man in the planet, which puts Ragnar ahead by one point and gives him the lead. Forgoing the bonus questions that I had prepared just in case. <laughs> If anybody knows the room of Hen the, the room number of Henry's apartment, that was going to be one of the bonus questions. But congratulations, Ragnar. All right. Yeah, I did it. A few things to talk about here and, and talk about again a kind of idea of, of surrealism um, and the and the grotesque. These are kind of two things that are that interest me. Uh, you know, the, the style of the film, what we were talking about before, kind of, you know, the, the dream quality of it and what that does for us. And also um, the the grotesque that seems to be expressed in a lot of body horror stuff. Uh, not that different from, let's say, like a David Cronenberg, early David Cronenberg film. It's time for Movie Rand. So see the grotesque, something grotesque as being defined as something that violates boundaries, right? We have these kind of, safe boundaries, like things that are dirty violate the boundary, right? They pollute something that should be clean. Uh, how do you think like the, the grotesque, the, those kind of polluters, those boundary violators work in this movie to accentuate the style? I think polluter, pollution, that's a great word because this whole film is about, it's very industrialized. Like we were talking about mounds of dirt everywhere. Um, the, 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 I don't, not pipes, not house pipes, you know, that, that have water, but like almost like steam pipes breaking into uh, people's homes. The radiator has like dead vegetation around it. So I think this whole film is polluted and the baby being quite grotesque, um, I think it's just one of the many, many, many ways Lynch tries to disrupt the viewer throughout the film. Ragnar, I loved that pipe in in um in Mary's yep. folks' house. The dad's talking about being a plumber, and there's that pipe right there, and you're like, oh, I guess he means that pipe. Like you can't help but think he must have worked on that pipe right there. That's what he's talking about. Um, but to answer Tom's question, are there I, the chicken scene? There's kind of this three beat thing that happens, right? We're at the dinner table, and we all can imagine being at the dinner table with our in laws, and. The, the dad is making it uncomfortable by telling these stories. And then he does one of the most terrifying things in the world. Can you cut this for me? And like, no matter what, you're going to do it wrong, right? The dad probably has a way you're supposed to do it and you're going to do it wrong. So that's the first beat is the dad makes it uncomfortable. The second beat is 
now Henry's got to cut it. But then he crosses that boundary with the, the gushing blood. So I feel like one of the things David Lynch does really well is he sets you up for the boundary and then crosses it. So I'm, I can't think of anywhere else in the movie specifically right now. But I think one of the reasons the grotesque kind of works is that setting up with the boundary first and then crossing it. He doesn't just jump right into it. He also doubles down on disturbing. So the baby mutant monster creature, whatever you want to call it, is already pretty darn disturbing. Then he's annoying with the noise. Okay. Then on top of that, in the scene where we find out the baby was sick, I didn't think they could make this thing any more gross than it was. All of a sudden it has boils and it's spewing out stuff of its little weird mouth. Talk about bringing it to another level. So he keeps going just when you think he's at the maximum of disturbance. Okay. There's something that's going to gross you out. He finds a way to up the stakes. And then he cuts its diaper off or whatever was holding it together. And then you see it's inside and it just goes off the rails. Yeah, he stabs it and the oh. like a body parts <laughs> burst. Yeah. But to KJ's point about the kind of setting up the boundary and then violating it, I think it's a really great way to describe it, especially like, like that dinner scene does so much work. Right. Because when I, the first time I watched this, I thought that's that seems a little long and I really love the stuff after it. And I found the dinner scene hilarious. But, you know, I was like ready to ready to go, you know, ready to gallop. Um but the dinner scene lays it. I think the dinner scene, that that chicken moment where you lay out the chicken, you're going to have the chicken, and then it becomes disgusting. It becomes something we're all going to do. We're going to enjoy a delicious chicken, and then it becomes filth, right? You, you, it, you reject it. You push it away. Um, that seems to be what the entire dinner scene does for the movie, right? It's this idea of like a guy and a gal, and he, he, he's kind of an old-fashioned guy, and she's an old fashioned, from an old-fashioned family. She is. And they're going to, you know maybe have a relationship and then those those trappings of normalcy marriage and kids and whatnot it it suddenly starts oozing the whole, the institution itself starts oozing and the rest of the movie is pushing it back um and, it, and it's also about kind of henry trying to find his identity by die distancing himself from what that is i mean at first he tries to go along with it you know he gets married he comes home after dinner and and at one point even smiles at the baby um but i mean the rest of the movie is him like trying to shut the baby up or trying to leave and the baby is screaming this is constant idea of wanting to push away the filth to be on your own to be a person and failing until the end maybe even before that dinner scene um, I think it's really important. David Lynch sets up Henry's apartment where Henry's there by himself. If he didn't set up the apartment as a, as a place where Henry did like to kind of be and, and had a normal life before the baby came, it wouldn't have hit so hard. Well, maybe it still would have. I don't know. It's a weird baby, but it may not have hit as hard without that, that boundary being established first. Especially since he was on vacation. <laughs> that was one of the yeah, funniest yeah. lines. In what do you do for like? Well, I'm on vacation. What does that mean? You're in between jobs. Like, <laughs> how does that help? I thought that well, was great. He was a printer. Why did Why did you think he was a printer? Did it Did it come up in the yeah. movie? No, he said. No, he says he's a printer. He says he's a he printer. does say or like okay. uh, the factory, factory, something factory. Yeah, because uh, yeah, then they okay. say that he works at I think Lapel's factory, and then the father goes, "Oh, you're a printing man. I'm a plumber." Oh, <laughs> right, right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's such a great answer. 
Yeah, I like that scene. In in fact, Mr. X really made me feel more like um like a Twin Peaks dialogue. I don't know if you guys got that vibe, but that's what I thought of. I know that's much later in the future, but just that kind of banter. Yeah, it's it's the everyday banter made strange. Because there's really nothing, if you describe this banter, it's like, I talked about my job and what I did. He talked about his job. And then he off, he let me cut the dinner. You know, like he let me cut the, the meat for the dinner. I mean, it's it's not like you're like, oh, okay, this is quite a story. Um, but it, in when Lynch does it, it makes it makes those kind of normal institutions strange, um, you know, and that's complemented, of course, by, for some reason, a billion puppies sucking on a baby, the, the inside of the building, the, the, like the pipes and the walls are inside the room. For some reason, twigs are being stored in buildings, right? There, there were like twigs in the, the draws and on the, like the, the Ottomans and whatnot. Oh, we could we could spend a whole episode yeah. on on imagery just with the dirt and nature indoors, and it, it's a very weird mix of things. Yeah, it's not it's 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 porous. The world is porous. We could do a whole other episode on the this, sound. Yeah, there was always some annoying, distract and annoying mm. in a good way, distracting sound like the sixty hertz hum, uh, the metal grinding, or um. There was a was it a sewing machine or the uh, towards the end when when ah, I can't even remember but you always had to be listening to hear the dialogue over some other sound that was just trying to pierce your ear and it was great I thought that really worked well when you guys were talking about painting early on that's actually a point I was going to bring up is I actually thought of all the senses that sound the audio components of this movie is really what hit me it wasn't just the visual KJ that hum was there. Whether you remember it or not, it's there. And then there's other different things playing in the background. So I had in my notes, too, that I thought it was more of an audio spectacle than visual. The visual helps. And, and everything you guys said before was true. But I'm not usually the one who jumps out on, oh, the sound effects. That's usually KJ. That's really what I think kept me focused on the movie and even right now i know some of you guys are like really into this movie i still don't even know where i stand on this movie which i give it props for that i don't dislike it it's not my favorite movie ever but it was interesting enough that i have enough to talk about with it and still not really know how i feel about it yeah i i, I love the audio and i like that description that you gave nick that it's more of an audio film than a visual um you know, because Lynch is so known for his visuals, but that kind of that audio style, which I think he helped make. I know he wasn't necessarily the primary audio engineer, but I think he did contribute like sounds to it. I think that audio style and his best work is is always there. Um, my favorite Lynch audio style is the uh, when the bulb burns out, like in a lot of his movies, that sound of the bulb burning out. Um, and it's that's always kind of like a bookend to a scene, like the bulb going. Uh, yeah, um, that really sets a beat. And Ragnar mentioned before David Lynch that he didn't make this for the audience. I also feel like it was the exact movie he wanted to make and the studios didn't bug him about it. I don't know what his relationship was with them. They did, actually. He had trouble getting fundraising. Yeah, he, he made it for AFI. So the American Film Institute yeah. started an advanced film studies program in 1970 and Lynch was part of the second class of 1971, which he was invited after... I think one of the people working there um, saw his short film, the, the Grandmother, or 
was was helped him with the making of it who i think was actually sissy spacex husband of all things who's in the credits because i think her and her husband helped fund it <laughs> racer head he ran out of money after three years oh. so that's why he needs so when i was saying he had trouble studios and all that no one else would pay for him to finish this thing that was taken five years and not everyone understood it everyone there's certain people who were blown away by it and other people had no idea what he's talking about yeah but it wasn't a studio picture it was a, a film student project and so yes. the the movie yeah. itself was uh, in what they called the stables of AFI. AFI is in an old Beverly Hills mansion, um, and the stables were where the, they store the cars. Uh, and they just said you can have this for as long as you like. And so he built sets there, and that's where the the thing was filmed. And rebuilt sets too, because it was over yeah. five years. There's certain elements that they there are inconsistencies if you look at it, or an actress aging eighteen months. <laughs> so. And I, I, I think I really liked that we saw what he wanted to show us. But sometimes I felt like I could hear him giving cues to the actor. Take another item out of the bag. Or like um, when Henry was walking down and there was train tracks. There's going to be a dog barking. Jump over the tracks now. Like this kind of a. Yeah, I would imagine it would be tough to take direction from David Lynch, even with the main character. Certain mannerism, certain way of walking, his stature. There is a lot of subtle facial expressions as well yeah I, I think the the like i know the thing where mary has to take the suitcase out there's a scene for audience who might not know this, this is a scene where mary goes to stay with her parents and she has to take a suitcase out from under the bed and she pulls on that suitcase like six times without getting it out and the whole bed is shaking and apparently that was one of those moments you were talking about kj because apparently she just initially when she did it she just took the suitcase out and he's like no don't take the suitcase out until I say. And and she would just keep pulling on it and pulling on it and pulling on it until he said, <laughs> you can now take the suitcase out from under the bed. Um. Keep, keep in mind, us, the audience, don't know what she's doing in this event as well until after. Yeah. He didn't say, I'm going to get my suitcase from under the bed. She's just pulling at something under the bed for an ordinate amount of time. Yeah, it's one of the, yeah, the, the I think the, the kind of performance style um, sometimes requires just following route directions but so i want to close up then on, on our movie rent here um with the kind of guiding question right like what is this style really doing for us uh and so this is just a quick quote from this is a surrealist manifesto from 1924 by yvonne gall and uh, he was one of like the early surrealist artists and he said that quote reality is the basis of all great things Without it, no life, no substance. The reality of the ground under our feet and the sky on top of our head. Everything the artist creates has a starting point in nature. Stuff about cubism, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so he says that surrealism is this transportation of reality into an, a higher artistic plane constitutes surrealism. So, excuse me, the transportation of reality into a higher artistic plane constitutes surrealism. So do you think that definition that Gall gives us helps us understand the movie and what this style is attempting to communicate. I wouldn't call it a higher plane, but it might be a mm -hmm. different plane, maybe a side plane. Yeah, I think it's the idea of, it's not a departure from reality, but um, but a, a refiltering of reality, right? So there's this idea of like, it's a dream and it's just this kind of Freudian dream where you rep your repressed desires come out um or it is the it's 
the remaking of reality in a way, kind of like what you were saying, Ragnar, that highlights the subject in a way that's maybe more true to the subject in more of an expressionistic way. Um, personally, I think the film does both of these things. I think it deals with the kind of the, the horrifying desire that we occasionally find that we have, as well as that sort of expressionistic subjective way of looking at the world. Um, and that, that's kind of- I was gonna say, just, yeah, I, I agree. And that's the great thing about Lynch is that the only way we can even come close to understanding his work is by after the fact, going back and trying to put a label on what he's trying to do. I don't think he's chasing any kind of school of thought or influenced by any director or any anything. I think he's a very honest filmmaker and he is just pushing out how he perceives the world in his own style. And he's just, in, in, in interviews, other people have asked, you know, do you feel like you connect with other filmmakers your age? And he says, no, I feel completely alone. And I think it's just, he's just honest. He tells it how he remembers it, how he sees things, how he likes to express it. And then people call it weird and call it this and call it that. And he's just like, all right. Yeah, I agree. That, and that's, that's great. I think that's what, for me, I agree with you entirely. That's what the style does. And I think it's what Gall is saying in that quote. He's saying, it's, it's just reality. It's kind of raised, it's kind of a little different, but it's not what's, it, it is reality itself. It is the honesty. Tom, thanks for bringing another interesting movie for us to explore this week. I'd like to once again congratulate our winner, which is Ragnar. Yay. Yay. <laughs> yeah, Ragnar. Best guest ever. All kidding aside, it was great having you back. And I have a feeling you may join us again, probably not in the too distant future. I hope I come back very soon. Hopefully one of us can win, though. <laughs> Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. What do you think the style of Eraserhead communicates? Leave a comment on our YouTube channel and let's continue the conversation. Join us next time when we deviate from our normal movie watching experience and discuss the final episodes of the Star Wars Clone Wars TV show that ended in 2020. These were portrayed as a four-part movie and some, particularly me, view these as Star Wars Episode 3.5. Looking forward to hearing everyone's thoughts then. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> <laughs>